0: Welcome to the podcast of the Preaching Ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, good morning, LifePoint. It is great to see you all this morning. We pray that this morning would be a blessing and an encouragement to your life, and as Pastor Jonathan mentioned a few moments ago, we do have a guest speaker with us this morning, Dr. Alan Branch. Dr. Branch is the professor of Christian ethics at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Uh, Dr. Branch earned his Master of Divinity and Doctorate in Philosophy from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he currently serves as a research fellow in Christian ethics for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. He regularly presents in in different academic settings and and contributes to media outlets. He also served as a chaplain in the United States Army from 2009 to 2013, and during his service, uh, did a tour in the Middle East. Uh, between 2011 and 2012 uh, Dr. Branch enjoys regular preaching and teaching ministry and has served as an interim pastor in, in various churches in Kansas and Missouri. Dr. Branch and his wife Lisa are with us this morning. They have two daughters and Pastor Lane is very excited for you all to hear from Dr. Branch this morning. So Life Point Church, would you give a warm welcome to Dr. Branch?
1: One of, your, one of your pastors said that if you have any questions you're supposed to ask me after the service, and what I would say is there are only two questions that I cannot answer, and those are questions to which I do not know the answer and questions to which there are no answer. But other than that, I can answer any question that you may have after the service. Um, open your Bibles to John chapter 8. It's a great honor to be here. So thankful that you've given your pastor a sabbatical so he could recharge and Preach the word of God, minister to people, counsel and witness in a way that brings honor to Jesus Christ. We'll be reading verses 31 through 36, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, have the New American Standard. Here's what the word of God says. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We are children of Abraham, they said, and we have never been slaves of anyone. Jesus answered, and they said, how is it that you say we can be free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever, so if the son makes you free... You are free indeed. What a powerful statement. So, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Following Jesus Christ means living a life dedicated to Christian ethics. Well, what does that look like, and what does it mean to be a Christian and to live a life of moral integrity and Christian ethics, a life of high standards and following God's will and way? The challenge of doing so became very clear to me one afternoon after my guitar practice. I take guitar lessons for a number of years at Bentley Guitar Studio in Parkville, Missouri. And one afternoon after I left my guitar lesson, I walked out on the street of Parkville, Missouri, which has a small downtown, kind of like Ozark. It's old, quaint downtown. And I walked out there, and I opened up the door of my car to put the guitar in the back seat, and a gust of wind came along and blew the door open completely, and it put a door ding and a minivan next to me. And did not damage my car at all, but it did damage the uh, car next to me. And the first thing I did as soon as that wind blew the door open and dented the car next to me is I started looking around to see if anyone else had seen what had happened. Was there anyone who had observed this? Because my thought was, well, maybe I'll just drive off. And then I got mad. I was a little frustrated. This is an act of God. God did this. It's not my fault. The wind came along and blew the door open And so, gus is actually an act of God, much like a tornado or something. I didn't do it. And then I began to try to minimize the issue. Well, it's not that big a dent. And after all, I'm a little bit of a hot rod gearhead. And so, after all, does a minivan really count as an automobile, right? So, I hit the door. (laughs) I thought, does that really count? And then I started to try to justify it by saying, well, look, everybody gets door dings. What's the big deal? But... The challenge is, in fact, everybody does get door dings, but that doesn't relieve me from the responsibility of the fact that I was responsible for this particular door ding. And also, even though my first response was to look around and see if anyone was looking, whether anyone was looking or not, God was looking, we have a dog, his name is Truman, actually my daughter's dog but she got married and the dog stayed at the house anybody know that story and so it's the other dog but Truman is at Wolf's this morning which is a resort for animals I'm told and my wife can pull up a video camera of Truman right here in the service and you can see Truman running around playing with the other dogs they're not honoring the Sabbath but they're all playing together and I would suggest to you that if my wife can pull up a video of Truman sitting on the front row at Life Point Church, God Almighty sees what's happening. And sometimes we say, well, we try to justify things. Well, these things happen to everybody or it's an act of God. Or we go through all this moral reasoning. I wound up staying. I waited for the family to come out. The owner of the minivan could not have been more polite and gracious to me, and said, "Hey, man, it's not that big. It's a dent, bit smaller than a dime, I guess, as I recall today." And he was so gracious and encouraged me not to worry about it. I was ready to pay to have the ding pulled out, but that morning, standing there, and I teach Christian ethics, and I'm going through all these coping, poor, flawed coping mechanisms to try to avoid responsibility for denting someone else's car. And I don't suggest this. But here I teach, it and I teach ethics, and I'm doing all this. And it's a challenge for all of us to live for the Lord and live our lives in a manner consistently uh, that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it look like? We're going to talk a little bit this morning about Christian discipleship and Christian ethics and what it looks like to walk for the Lord on a daily basis. I have three big ideas. They'll put the three big ideas up on the screen. I hope you're ready to take notes. The first is this, the way to write living is found through following the right person. That's Jesus Christ. The way to right living is found through following the right person. That is through Jesus Christ. And the question is, who are we following? When it comes to an issue of right and wrong and our ethics and our morals, the question is, who are we following? Because the person we are following will establish the pattern of ethics that you and I are going to follow. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus gives us some real clear instruction on what it looks like to follow him. First of all, someone who's following Jesus Christ is governed by God's word. Look at verse 31. Jesus said, if you remain in my word. The New American Standard says, if you continue in my word. I like remain. That word remain, it means to stay there. We are planted. We are directly connected to God's word. We welcome it. We are at home with it. We live with God's Word continuously. And so when we remain in God's Word, it is so integrated into our life and thought and our habits of thinking that our patterns of behavior are governed by God's Word. And I would suggest to you wherever it is you remain in your life, intellectually, morally, the media you watch, the books you read, wherever it is you remain, That is eventually going to govern your moral and ethical behavior, wherever you remain. So the question is, are you remaining in God's word? Do you stay there? I'm often really concerned about the places that Christians remain. They're reading everything but the Bible. They stay in one place and stay in another, and they remain everywhere but in God's word. There's a book that came out in 2018. Millions of people have read it. I've heard lots of Christians talk about it. I've heard people say, oh, it's a great book, and it's being made into a movie. We can't wait for the movie to come out. And they remained a lot of time in the book. And the book is called Where the Crawdads Sing. Books sold millions and millions of copies, set the record for the most weeks at number one on the New York Times bestseller list for hardcover fiction, for hardcover fiction and it's called Where the Crawdads Sing, the movie's coming out very soon, written by a lady named Delia Owens, who's a graduate of the University of Georgia, go dogs, and she is a zoologist, and she's written some excellent stuff on zoology, and I've heard a lot of people talk about this book, Where the Crawdads Sing, and people like the plot because it's about a girl who's orphaned and her town does not treat her right her town disrespects her and dishonors her she is assaulted by an evil villain in the book a man named chase and she finally gets her uh, comeuppance with chase and she gets even with him and so there's a plot in the book that a lot of people like about a oppressed young woman who winds up becoming a well-respected scientist And widely venerated throughout the world. And people like the plot. The problem is the moral and ethical theory that Delia Owens is selling in the book. She's selling evolutionary ethics in the book. I've read every syllable of the book. First of all, parents, it's coming out as a movie and your kids are going to want to read it. I'll just tell you there's some sexually explicit language in the book. You need to be careful if you're going to let your kids read it. But the bigger concern I have is the the moral and ethical worldview that she is selling. Because she's selling evolutionary ethics, nature red, tooth and claw. When the character Kaya is thinking about getting even with the villain Chase, she's watching a female praying mantis devour another praying mantis. And she says this, I quote, Female insects, Kaya thought, know how to deal with their lovers. And that sets her on a plan of revenge. Revenge. You understand, this is evolutionary ethics. Nature, red, tooth and claw. You just do what you do. But at the same time, the author of the book, Delia Owens, wants us to not like the villain Chase because he has sexually assaulted this girl. He's a criminal. And she wants you not to like him and to think what he's done is wrong. My question is, based on the worldview she is selling us, why is what that villain did wrong? Because if all you've got is nature, red, tooth and claw, then buddy, it's survival of the fittest and you do what you do. But we don't get our ethics from the animals. Why should we be surprised if our children act like animals, if they're being taught the ethics of animals? But we have people remaining in things like that. And if you remain there, it's going to start affecting the way you think. If you remain in Fox News, it will affect the way you think. If you remain in CNN, if you remain in MSN, NBC, heaven help you. If you remain there, if you remain on talk radio, you're going to start repeating whatever it is you're getting off talk radio. If you remain on the internet with some internet influencer, wherever it is you remain, that's who you are going to follow and it's going to shape your ethics remain in god's word it is truth without mixture of error and it will lead you right we are governed by god's word if we're going to follow jesus christ not only we governed by god's word a disciple of jesus christ is guided by god's son notice what he says if you remain in my word then you are my disciples. That word disciple is sometimes translated pupil, but that's a weak translation. It means more than just being a pupil or being a student. We are intimately attached to Jesus Christ. Our life is hidden inside the life of Jesus Christ. We are following him, and we are guided by God's son. We're attached to Jesus. I want to say a word about YouTube influencers and smartphones. Parents, listen to the preacher this morning. No 12-year-old needs a smartphone. 79% of kids with smartphones take them into their bedrooms. It is an infinitely bad idea for your 12-year-old or 13-year-old. It's such an infinitely bad idea for some 40-year-olds in this room. But nonetheless, to sit in your bedroom with a smartphone where every pagan, godless person on the face of planet Earth has direct access to your kid when they're 10.30 at night and they're trying to figure out life and they're going to YouTube influencer after YouTube influencer and the algorithms, if they hit on one issue, it's going to send them 10 more videos related to that issue. You need to think real hard before you give your kid a smartphone. You've just opened them up to a universe. I would suggest to you an 11 and 12 year old is not morally ready to discern who's telling them the truth and who is not on a smartphone. Who is guiding you? We are guided by God's son. I want every teenager and boy and girl listen to the preacher this morning. No YouTube influencer you watch on your smartphone or your computer is ever going to come to your house. They don't know your name and they don't care about you. Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God. He stepped out of eternity into time and came to this world and died on a Roman cross and was buried and rose from the grave. And the Bible says he has your name engraven on the palm of his hands. And he loves you. Who are you being guided by? Who's guiding you? We're governed by God's Word. If we're going to live with the Lord, we're governed by God's Word. We're guided by God's Son. And the disciples of Jesus Christ, when we're governed by God's word and we're guided by God's son, we are given both truth and peace and power. Notice what it says. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So we're given truth and freedom. We're given truth. Let me put this in context I don't know if I have any Longhorn fans here or Longhorn graduates, but the University of Texas Austin has at the center of their campus a bell tower. It's built in 1936. It's very prominent. And on that bell tower is engraved the King James Version of John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And it's right there in the middle of that secular campus. And in a secular context, that phrase is lifted out of the Bible and taken out of context as some sort of anthem for academic freedom and abandoning moral absolutes. And we certainly don't want Christian sexual ethics and we don't need the Christian worldview. We're just searching for something. We're gonna find the truth and the truth is gonna make us free. I would tell you, they've taken that verse out of context on the bell tower because it is a conditional statement. It's not just John eight thirty two; It's John eight thirty one and 32. The entire quote is this. If you remain in my word... Then you are truly my disciples, and then you know the truth, and the truth sets you free. You know the truth by remaining in God's Word, by being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's some things that Jesus teaches, you're never going to understand the truth of them until you put them into practice. For example, forgiving your enemies. That doesn't sound right because we live in a world where it's get even. I take it out on my enemies. But you will never understand the power of forgiveness till you forgive someone and you understand how it sets you free. You remain in my word, then you're truly my disciples, then you know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So the question is, who are you following? Question of ethics is, who is your leader? Who are you following? I'm going to give you an example of how following people can lead you astray. One silly, one serious, but perhaps a couple serious. Let me start with the silly one the danger of following the wrong person. It's dangerous if you follow the wrong person. There is a singer. Her name is Kesha. She's a popular singer. She has a dollar sign in her name. I raise daughters. I'm married to a beautiful wife. And I think every female needs a dollar sign in her name. But none of the Kesha has a dollar sign in her name. But her biggest hit was a few years back, and I know I'm only like 30 miles north of Branson, so I'm assuming there's not a lot of Keisha going on around here, but the biggest hit she had was called TikTok. I did my research this week, and over 700 million downloads of Keisha's song TikTok on Spotify. And the song's all about drinking and partying and drinking and partying and drinking and partying. And at one point in the song, Keisha says... The guys are lining up because they hear we got swagger, but we kick them to the curb unless they look like Mick Jagger. <laughs> you know, I told you this song was about drinking and partying. One sign you might be drinking too much alcohol is if you think Mick Jagger is a standard <laughs> for beauty, okay? You might be drinking too much alcohol. That's my suggestion. <laughs> Where are they leading you? Where is this world leading you? I can't repeat the lyrics of a little nasty X song. And I can't repeat the lyrics of so many. Where are these people leading you? That's a silly example. Let me give you a more serious one. By all accounts, the most influential philosopher of the 20th century is a man named Ludwig Wittgenstein. He was from Austria. He wrote a book called Tracticus Logico Philosophicus, which is an earth shaking book. 1920s, a group of philosophers in Vienna pick up Wittgenstein's book and they say, wow, you are, this guy's a genius. We've never met him. He's so smart. We wish we could meet this genius. And un, are we understanding him correctly? Wouldn't it be great if we could talk to him? They go find him. The guy was teaching school off in the middle of the, in the Alps and, of Austria. And they bring him to Vienna and they sit down with him and said, Herr Wittgenstein, have we understood you correctly? You say this, is this what you mean? You say this, is this what you mean? And he was so condescending to this room full of PhDs sitting around a table trying to understand him. He just, he just answered with complete disdain. When they would ask him questions, he thought their questions were so stupid he wouldn't even dignify it with an answer. He'd just start quoting uh, poems. This really happened. So he's sitting in a room with all these philosophy professors and they say have we understood you and he would just start quoting a poem his way of saying I don't even think you even know what to ask it's sort of like he's saying you know roses are reds violets are blue I'm so glad I'm not as dumb as you I mean that's really kind of what he was doing do you see the arrogance in that I'm not even going to answer your question you got questions about life you wonder if you've understood me I'm not even going to answer your question how different when God became a man Jesus didn't act with arrogance and disdain toward humanity. What did Jesus do? He said, let me explain God to you this way. Look at those flowers. Look at those birds. God takes care of them. He's going to take care of you. Let me tell you what God's like. There was this man, he had two sons. One of them took his daddy's inheritance, went and partied it away, wound up in a pig pen. And when he came to his senses and he got out of the pig pen, he said, I'll rise and go to my father's house. And when the father saw him from a distance, the father ran. What mercy! Who are you following? Where are they leading you? You're following somebody. I, I'm so weary of people feeling, well, you know, Branch, I think for myself. And excuse me, my fo- oh, look at this. i got a feed here, and I, I'm looking at my Twitter, and i, I th- excuse me. Oh, but I think for myself, Branch. And Branch, I, I don't need some God, and I don't need Jesus. Oh, well, wait a minute. Oh, wow, what did that person say? That sounds like a good idea. I'll retweet that. You're not thinking for yourself. Somebody else is thinking for you. The question is, where are they leading you? And a Christian is guided by God's son. We're guided by God's Son, and that's the key for your ethics. The key to right living is following the right person. Who are you following? Secondly, Christian ethics calls for clarity in our moral reflection. I want to give you seven points. These don't come out of the text. These are seven principles for thinking about Christian ethics, seven ways to think through Christian ethics What does it mean to think with clarity about these things? If we're going to follow God's son and we're going to live our life for him, what does that look like? Let me give you seven ways. First, God's boundless love does not mean love has no moral boundaries. God's boundless love does not mean uh, God's love has no moral boundaries. John 14, 15 says, He who loves me keeps my commandments. Love always has moral boundaries. We live in a day and age where people just quote, love for anything. You know, the Beatles said, all you need is love, all you need is love, 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 love is all you need. That didn't even work for the Beatles. They broke up. I mean, right? They didn't even make... Some of you still think Yoko Ono is the Antichrist. I understand, but this... Uh, all the kids under 20, they have no idea who Yoko Ono is, what that means. But here's the point. Love always has moral boundaries. If you have love without moral boundaries, you don't have love. You've just got indulgence. Um, any ordered relationship, love always has moral boundaries. That's true in your own life. Stop and think about it. You stood at, many of you who are married stood at an altar and you said something like this Forsaking all others, I pledge you my love. You just put moral boundaries around your love. Forsaking all others, I pledge you my love. Love always has moral boundaries. We have some distorted and confused ideas about the love of Jesus Christ. A man named Robert Gagnon, whom I hold in high regard, New Testament scholar said this, what was distinctive about Jesus' ministry was not that he refused to make judgments about the conduct of others or even that he lowered his moral standards. On the contrary, in many areas, Jesus elevated those standards. What was distinctive was his incredibly generous spirit, even toward those who had lived in gross disobedience to God for years. Jesus did not confuse, love with toleration of all behaviors and neither should the church love always has moral boundaries let me try to put it this way a few years back some uh psychologists were trying to understand how kids respond to boundaries and how that kind of shapes their behavior they had two playgrounds set up one playground swing set jungle gym slide in the middle of the playground but no fences The other playground, swing set, jungle gym slide, but it had a fence around the playground. Here's what they observed. In the playground with no fence, all the kids clustered around the slide. They all clustered. Why? They they didn't feel safe to go very far. There's no boundaries out there. But on the other playground where the fence surrounded everything, the children ran all over the place. Why? Because the six-year-old was smart enough to know that boundary is safe, and if I stay inside of that fence, I can run anywhere I want to run. Might I suggest to you, God has put boundaries and moral and ethical boundaries around your life, not because he doesn't love you, but because he does. And he wants you to run and enjoy and experience all the great things in life within his parameters. But you get outside of those parameters, it gets deadly in a hurry. So love always has moral boundaries. God's boundless love does not mean love has no moral boundaries. Secondly, You have to distinguish between situational ethics and situational awareness. Sometimes people come up with a problem, they say, well, there's all these variables here at this problem, and so it just means there's no moral absolutes. That's situation ethics. Situation ethics is a flawed system of thinking that denies the existence of moral absolutes. In fact, what they usually advocate is some sloppy form of love, and love just boils down to whatever I want to do in any given situation. That's a bad way to do your ethics. Situational ethics is not the same thing as situational awareness. Situational awareness means that you acknowledge all these variables in a situation, but it's a spirit-guided understanding of the moral dynamics and variables present in any given situation. Your ability to respond correctly to a moral question will only be as effective as the clarity with which you see the question. You've got to have situational awareness in this world. Uh, I was a chaplain in the Army Reserves. Some of you folks who are in the military, you know the term situational awareness. situational awareness is what you have to have in combat if you don't have situational awareness in the combat we have a word for you it's called casualty and you have to have situational awareness in this world you need to be aware of what's being sold and what's being told to you so let me try to give you an idea of why you need situational awareness in the swirl of moral questions going around today driving down from Kansas City yesterday in Missouri, Red State, America, I was coming down Highway 13 and the signs I saw for cannabis stores, Everybody's selling cannabis. Let me go ahead and tell you one thing. I've, I've done a lot of pastoral counseling and ministry and witnessing, sharing Christ, witness for Christ in homes, been in homes. I have never been in a home yet where somebody said, you know, Branch, we were on the verge of divorce and bankruptcy, but then we started smoking pot, and, buddy, it got better. Let me just tell you, everything straightened out. Man. Three doobies a day does it, man. We have no more problems, right? No! No! Nobody says that! Why? Because you, it messes with your brain, and you become a pothead, and you don't think straight. Um, there's a couple of trends you need to know about marijuana. First, the, this wouldn't surprise you, it's become legal. More people are smoking it. So between 90, is 2002 and 2018, the number of people who smoke pot on a regular basis increased from 11 to 18% in the United States. From 1995 to 2018, the percentage of THC in marijuana increased on average from four percent to fifteen percent it's almost tripled so people are smoking more pot and the pot they're smoking is stronger and we got medical cb medical marijuana stores everywhere i read a peer-reviewed article this week some um, researchers are trying to say well we've got all these medical marijuana stores and people are getting their medical marijuana first of all let's just clear away some brush most people who get their medical marijuana card aren't getting it because they're suffering from the effects of chemotherapy. That's not why they're doing it. They're getting it because they want to smoke pot. So let's just be honest. Let's stop lying to each other. Vast majority of people get a medical marijuana card. They just want to smoke pot. There is no peer-reviewed data that shows any effectiveness of marijuana for dealing with long-term chronic pain. And I... But here's the thing. These guys were looking at in this article. What knowledge base are people, are these bud tenders. They don't call themselves bartenders at the cannabis store. They call themselves bud tenders because they're, they're selling the buds, right? And so they call themselves bud tenders. Well, what knowledge base are they using to give advice to people for their medical marijuana? Because the effectiveness of any drug is directly related to dosage and timing. So how are they getting this drug? And what they discovered is most, the, the most common Knowledge base that most bud tenders are using is their own experience with smoking pot. Well, you know you got that problem. You know I don't know. Three or four doobies a day does it for me. That's what I do for you. I, they don't know. It's all about any drug is only as useful as its correct use and dosage and timing. Wake up. Get some situational awareness. What's happening is a lost world is telling you just go smoke dope and burn your brain and that'll take care of your problems. I got a better answer. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. He will give you that's man, is this like a Episcopalian church or something? Do y'all not know how to say amen? I come on, my word. I guess not. Nobody said amen even then, even when I asked for it. But well, maybe more bud tenders here than I thought. Third. <laughs> Poorly defined problems lead to poorly chosen solutions. Poorly defined problems lead to poorly chosen solutions. Proverbs 14, 18, the naive inherit foolishness, the sensible are crowned with knowledge. The word naive means deficient in moral judgment. Let me try to put this in perspective. If you you define a problem poorly, you're going to come up with wrong answers. A poorly defined problem leads to poor answers. I'm going to use a moral issue in our culture. It has to do with Down syndrome. Down syndrome are our neighbors who have an extra chromosome. And in the United States, about 70% of children who are diagnosed in utero with Down syndrome are aborted. And when you listen to the moral argumentation about Down syndrome, the problem is defined very poorly because what people will say was, well... You know, we don't want these children to suffer, so we're going to end their life. And Let that sink in. Someone just said, we don't want someone to suffer, so we're going to eliminate them. You understand, this is eugenics dressed up in a different name. That's all it is. And if you've ever had a Down syndrome friend, you know the biggest suffering they have to deal with are arrogant people who can't put up with someone who's a little bit different. If you, have a, you know that extra chromosome is often called the love chromosome because if you have a Down syndrome friend, you have a friend for life. Let me tell you, to phrase the issue, well, we don't, how are they going to deal with these kids suffering? That's the wrong moral question. That is poorly defining the problem. The right way to define a problem is how do we make space for people who are just a little bit different and what can we learn from them? That's the better question. Poorly defined problems lead to poorly chosen solutions. Fourth, do you have a moral dilemma or do you have a faith dilemma? Uh, A dilemma means two directly opposite concepts are in conflict. So I've had people come to me and tell me something like, well, I've got this moral dilemma and I so I'm going to give you an example, which is a sort of a composite of a lot of conversations I've had, never had this specific conversation, of have a lot like this. So someone will come to me and say, well, I've, I've had, I've got this moral dilemma. I say, oh, you do? Two conflicts, uh, two concepts in conflict. Yes, yes, two principles in conflict. Okay, what is it? Well, you see, I work for a company and, um, boss has got some clients coming in from out of town, and my boss wants me to take them out and entertain them. And my boss has said they want to go to a gentleman's club. And you know no gentleman goes there, and you know what they are. And they want to go to a gentleman's club, and he said, I've got to take them. And if I'm go- I've am i got a dilemma because if I don't take them, I might lose my job. But if I do take them, you know, I know God did not really want me to go there, but I don't want to lose my job, and i got to take care of my family. Let me just stop right there. You don't have a moral dilemma in that situation. There's no question about right and wrong. The right thing is don't go and tell them I'm not going to go. The question is, it's a faith question. Well, if I tell them no, I might lose my job. Yes, you might. Welcome to following Jesus. He said, take up your cross, not your easy chair. Welcome to follow. Yeah, well, you might lose your job. And you've got a faith question, not a moral question, because the question is, can you trust God to take care of you if you do the right thing? Well, I've got thousands of years of Christians that say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, yes, you can. You might have to go through the fire like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but you go God's way, you'll come out the other side. They won't even smell smoke on you. So the question is, do you have a moral dilemma or a faith dilemma? Can you trust God to do what God's going to do? Fifth, an ancient principle helps us to walk in a just manner, uh, and that is we treat different cases differently, and we treat similar cases similarly. Micah 6.8, what was the Lord require of you to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God? So what does it mean to do justice? There's a lot of questions about justice, and what I'm giving you here is a very ancient principle of justice. It is old. It is very old and that's this. You treat different cases differently. You treat similar cases similarly. If you start treating similar cases differently and you treat different cases similarly, you're going to get into all sorts of trouble. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I'm on the academic affairs committee at for our undergrad program at our school. and So we handle all sorts of appeals from students. About a year ago, we got two appeals on the same day. Both students wanting to be allowed to drop a class far after the drop date. So the first case was a student who basically didn't do his work and did not study and failed the exams and didn't turn in homework and went up getting an F in the class and after the semester was over decided you know I really wish I didn't have that F and I'm going to ask them if they just let me drop it. So I'm on the committee and I made a motion and my motion was based on something I learned in the United States army and that is sometimes we learn through experience and sometimes we learn through blunt force trauma and I think this is a taste where this young man was going to learn through blunt force trauma I said no we're not going to let him drop because he failed the class and the committee voted he did not allow him to drop next student wanted to drop after the drop date had a long letter of explanation from her doctor as well as from the hospital where she'd been hospitalized telling us how many days she'd been hospitalized. In the middle of the semester, out of her control, she had a major illness strike her. It was after the drop date. She was not able to keep up. And I made the motion. I make a motion that we allow this student to drop after the drop date. And when I did, one of my colleagues on the committee said, oh, now we get the nice doctor branch, to which I said, let the record show I was being nice in the first case. It is not kind to pretend you didn't fail a class when you did, but these cases are different, why? In the second case, the student had things happen completely outside of her control. She had a major illness. You treat different cases, you treat different cases differently. And you treat similar cases similarly. Same principles apply, but you treat different cases differently. Treat similar cases similarly. I got to tell you, just a word on this thing about, about justice and speaking in a just manner. I've just given you a very ancient principle of justice. It stood the pre- test of time. You are going to be tempted with today's social media every time something happens for you to go give your hot read on social media. You better watch out. You don't know all the facts till everything's in. You need to wait. We always express compassion for a community that's suffering. But you'd better make sure and be very careful about jumping out and giving your hot read when you don't know everything just yet. Next principle is this. Differences between cultures do not mean cultural relativism is true. Romans 12, uh, excuse me, Romans two, fourteen through 15 talks about God's natural law put in the hearts of all men. Um, Cultural relativism also known as moral relativism is the idea is that because different cultures have different ideas That maybe there are no moral absolutes just one culture does this or one culture does that Well, yeah, maybe another answer is this. Maybe your culture is just broken Well, what do you mean? It's 1940. Excuse me. It's 1840 1840 the United States of America people are buying and selling human beings for profit Hey, your culture is broken It's 2022. You got a gazillion dollar porn industry and every smartphone is a porn capable device. Hey, maybe your culture's broken. Cultural differences don't mean cultural relativism is true. We learn to appreciate cultural differences. Let me try to put this in perspective. When Lottie Moon, famous Baptist missionary, is in China when she arrived all the other western missionaries in china were dressing in western attire and basically when they had converts they would start telling them you need to dress in western attire too among several things Lottie moon did missiologically she said that's nonsense when you get to follow christ you don't have to dress like me and she started dressing in chinese attire when she went out into villages witnessing and people became infuriated at her the other western missionaries but she understood something Cultural differences aren't the same thing as cultural relativism. You celebrate cultural differences and the good that's in all the different cultures. God's common grace spread throughout the world. But that doesn't mean cultural relativism is true. We celebrate cultural differences. Embrace them. And finally, I'll just remind you, the study of ethics should drive us to see our need for Jesus Christ. It's hypothetically possible for you to be moral apart from Jesus. You will never be righteous apart from Jesus. And righteousness is what we need to stand before God. So not only do we need clarity about our moral reflection, the third point is this. The power for right living is found in Jesus Christ. Because if you look at Christian ethics, forgive your enemy, love your neighbor, sexual purity fidelity and all these areas of integrity someone who's not a Christian if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ you're looking all that and you say there is no way I can live that right life in fact you're quite right there is no way you can live the moral Christian life absolutely no way you can but Jesus Christ living in you can do it the Holy Spirit working through you can do it on our own we cannot do it um so Many people have taught great things about ethics in the history of humanity. Aristotle had this idea called the golden mean, but Aristotle didn't tell you how you're supposed to achieve this golden mean, the balance between all these extremes. And he just said, this is what you're supposed to do, but it left you powerless to do it. And Confucius said some things about ethics which are helpful, but his answer was, just go venerate your ancestors, maybe that'll work out. He didn't give you the power. Buddha actually said some things on occasion which are helpful in treating fellow humans with dignity and honor. The problem was he's basically an atheist. And his whole goal was to break free from cycles of reincarnation. And he's hoping you just the ultimate goal is to cease to exist. But he doesn't give you any power. Why? Because Aristotle was a brilliant man, but he died. And Confucius said some bright things, but he died. And Buddha said some things that were interesting, but he died. Jesus Christ taught and lived a life of ethical perfection, and he died, and they buried him, and then he rose from the grave. And now he's alive, and he's seated at the Father's right hand. Someday he's coming back, and when he changes your heart through the new birth, he himself comes and lives within you, and the life you and I can't live, he lives through us. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because who the sun sets free is free indeed. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. You are free to live a life of Christian ethics and power and living the will of God. What does that look like? Let me try to put it in perspective with this story. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. My word. The date was April 18th, 1942 it was in the far western Pacific, about 400 miles from the coast of Japan, 16 B-25 bombers on the deck of the USS Hornet. They're led by a man, Colonel uh, Billy Doolittle, and they're going to take off and attack Japan. I know for the young people here today, it doesn't seem like a big deal to you. USA had lost and lost and lost and lost and lost, and we were looking for some way to try to strike back And so Colonel Doolittle came up with the idea of flying land-based bombers off an aircraft carrier and having a bombing mission on military installations in Japan. And it's called the Doolittle Raid. It's very famous. 16 B-25s on the deck of the USS Hornet. Five uh, airmen on each one of those aircraft, 80 men in total. And the plan was to bomb Japan then fly across the Sea of Japan and land in China and be picked up by our Chinese allies. With any mission, things go wrong. And of the 16 aircraft that took off to strike Japan that day, April 18th, 1942, they succeeded in their mission, caught the the enemy completely by surprise. They flew across the Sea of Japan. 14 of those aircraft and uh, uh, 72 of the men were actually picked up by our Chinese allies. Two of the air crews didn't make it. They were picked up by the Japanese. Of those two air crews, two men died on impact. The remaining eight were taken into captivity by the Japanese. And the reason this is important, because on the 16th aircraft that took off from the Hornet that day was a man named Jacob de He's a bombardier on the 16th aircraft. And Jacob de is one of the men who gets captured by the Japanese after the Doolittle Raid. The Japanese execute three of the men they captured. Another one dies in captivity. That leaves four alive. And Jacob de Sajer, the bombardier on the 16th plane on the Doolittle Raid, is in Japanese captivity uh, for the rest of the war. And it's solitary confinement. It's hot. It's no food. It's vermin and the filth and the bugs and the rats and the rodents and the horror and the heat, and he's not a Christian, and he's ticked off at God, doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in the Bible, and he's mad at his enemies, and all he wants is to get even, get me out of here. I'm gonna get me some on these guys. Jacob DeShazer, not a Christian. 1943 through series of events which can only be attributed to the sovereignty of God. Jacob de was given a Bible. For some reason, his Japanese captors said, you have a Bible, you can read it for three weeks. Who knows why they chose three weeks. But you, got it, you can read it for three weeks. So he's not a Christian, but he's in solitary confinement, this horrible prison. He starts reading the Bible. Over those three weeks, he gives his life to Christ. And something happened within Jacob de in the filth and the horror of that prison. He's being tortured and abused by his captors. And here's what happened. He went from hating his captors to feeling sorry for them and feeling compassion for them. And he began to forgive them when Jesus came into his life. And he moved from hatred to forgiveness. So here's this man in prison. Think about this he's in prison, but he's free. He's not bound by hatred and unforgiveness. The people who have him in prison are supposedly free, but they're really the ones in chains. After the war, he is set free, goes back to the United States, goes to Bible college, comes back to Japan as a missionary, helped start several churches in Japan. He wrote a little tract called I Was a Prisoner of Japan about how God changed his heart and help him forgive his enemies, and how he came to preach the gospel. One day, walking down a street in Japan, is a man named Mitsuo Fujita, and someone handed Mitsuo Fujita one of these little tracts by Jacob de I was a prisoner of Japan. The man's name, Mitsuo Fuchida, that might mean something to some of you who know your history. He was the flight leader in the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. He had a specially prepared aircraft. Once all those Japanese aircraft got in the air, he was in command. He's the guy that called out, Tora, 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 back to the guys on the aircraft carriers to let them know how things were going. Mitsuo Fuchida, the lead pilot, the commander in the air in the attack on December 7th, 1941, picks up this track, I was a prisoner of Japan. Someone just sticks it in his hand. He doesn't get saved that day, but it starts him on a journey a couple of years later, which ends with him coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He comes to faith in Jesus Christ, eventually becomes an evangelist. I have a friend named Jim Anderson, who's uh, very old now, but in the 1960s, he had Mitsuo Fashida come preaching his church down in Fort Worth, Texas. And on occasion, Jacob DeShazer and Mitsu would preach together. They would preach together. Now how is it that people who were enemies, a Doolittle raider, and the leader in the attack on Pearl Harbor can get together and preach to a group of people about the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. Because who the sun sets free is free indeed. Jesus Christ sets people free from sin and he gives you the power to live the life that you've always dreamed of living and you never knew how to live because when he comes in, he doesn't take sides. He takes over and he gives you a new life. He gives you a new power and the key to living the Christian life, it's not in you, it's in him. It's in him. Help me. He who the sun sets free.